Well, we have finished our series of sermons in the book of Romans, and uh, I've been praying and, and pondering what to preach next. And I really, uh, as I've been uh, praying about this and thinking about it, I've, I've been uh, concerned that I felt like some of the major themes that we've been working our way through with Romans needed to continue. And I've been wondering uh, where God would have me preach next. Uh, And I feel that he's led me to preach from the book of John, the gospel according to John. And I've found as I'm reading through the book, and this past week especially, I've been kind of uh, reading through it very carefully uh, and combing through it. I find that uh, even though it's written very differently than uh, the book of Romans, uh, it is a book written with the intent of bringing people to saving faith in Jesus. And it is very much uh, a book that, that uh, deals with the idea of faith in, in a manner that requires uh, us to really fully invest ourselves and commit ourselves to Christ. Uh, and in that sense, the, the dual themes that I found in Romans, I think we're going to find throughout the gospel, according to John. This idea of that the gospel is something we need to fully live and grow deep in it and internalize it deeply. And also that we have a responsibility to communicate this gospel to the world around us because it is the message of rescue for all of creation. It is the answer to the need of all creation and of every human being. So uh, I think we're going to find that even though it's going to feel very different, as we work our way through John, I think we'll find that God is reminding us of much the same uh, emphases that we've been looking at this past year in Romans. So uh, we are in the Gospel according to John. I've titled the whole series, The Message Became Flesh. And uh, we're going to be looking at the first passage, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I've titled this one, God's Message to You. And by that, I don't mean to suggest that it's only for you. But I do believe the Gospel of John, perhaps more so than any of the other three Gospels, really challenges us personally to respond to Jesus. And this Gospel ultimately is something you as an individual will need to answer to. So that, that's kind of my sense in titling it that. Let's dig right into the passage. We'll read verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the message, and the message was with God, and the message was God. This one was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him, and without him not even one thing came to be which has come to be. In him was life, and the life was the light of humans. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. I have several things I would like to uh, pick out about this. First of all, you might have noticed that uh, most translations there have, in the beginning was the word. And that is the meaning of that word in Greek, logos. It means word. Uh, But it, it, uh, it conveys more than just 
a word, a series of letters that uh, you pronounce a certain way and that are associated with a certain conceptual idea. The idea of word in, with logos is something communicative. It's something that uh, a conscious being speaks in order to communicate with another person. And this kind of a word uh, in, expects a receptor, expects somebody to receive the word. Uh, probably the best uh, way in which we use that word in English would be to think, if I were to say to you, I want to have a word with you, that's, that I think approximates the idea of logos. I want to have a communication with you. So I have translated it message. Uh, it is uh, the message of God. And uh, John takes us way back uh, before anything happened. Now, in the beginning, is should anybody who's familiar with the Bible, it should immediately make you think of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you think Genesis takes us to the very beginning you couldn't go any further back than in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and yet John beat out Moses. He took us further back than that because he doesn't even start talking about creation until verse 2. In verse 1, he has us in that uh, situation before creation even began. In that situation, before there even was such a thing as time or space, when it was God alone. In the beginning. And uh, he doesn't say it was God. He says in the beginning was this message. And uh, he says that this message was with God. So God is there before creation begins. This message is there with God. And lest we think John is telling us that there were two eternal gods, he clarifies, and the message was God. And God is what this message was. That tells us some things about who God is. That tells us that at his core, God is communicative. And you may say, how can that happen? God, how can God be communicative if he's the only one? Well, the mystery of who God is is profound. God, we find out as we work our way through the Bible, we find out that God is one God in three persons indivisibly one it's not three gods that get along really well it is one God and yet this one God exists in three persons so that within the very nature of God community is a reality already in God I want you to understand this about God he did not create because he was lonely he did not create because he wanted somebody to talk to God within himself was perfectly sufficient for communion and for his own existence eternally as message. But God chose to create. As a free being, he has the right to do whatever he wants, and he chose to create. And John goes on in verse 2 that this one, this one he's talking about, this message, and as we work our way through this, it's clear he's talking about Jesus. 
But this one was in the beginning with God. We're, we're going back to that mysterious time even physicists today ponder about before the Big Bang, before everything exploded into existence. God was message. And message was part of what God is from the very beginning. Verse 3, all things came to be through him. Everything that exists came to exist through this message, through Jesus. Without him, not even one thing came to be which has come to be. There is not a single thing in existence that did not come into existence because Jesus put it into existence. Nothing else creates we can rearrange the things Jesus created. I can take wood and shape it and build a house. But I didn't create the house. I just reassembled parts that Jesus gave me to work with. Similarly, Satan doesn't create anything. He makes use of the good things God created and twists them contrary to nature so that they become evil. But Jesus alone is the source of every single thing that exists. That tells me also that creation was an act of communication. God was saying something to his creation in the act of creation and culminates by creating a being in his image and likeness. And I believe what that points to is the fact that we have been created capable of exercising a relationship with God, capable of appreciating the communication he extends to us and of responding to it. So that creation itself for us as human beings becomes the ultimate act of communication from God. Perhaps not the ultimate, but a, a, an, an astoundingly broad uh, expression of God's self-revelation. Uh, Paul talks about this, how creation itself speaks to who God is and how everyone has no excuse for not worshiping God because creation itself screams who he is to us. John says about this message that it was a message that contained life. Life was in him. And that life was the light of humans. Uh, John is very clear that this light is not for a few. The light Jesus shines on us is not reserved for a special few. In fact, Jesus told us that we should be like God because he shines his light on the good and the bad. He makes his sun rise on the good and the wicked. There is not a single person on earth that is excluded from God speaking to them. And sometimes we think that only those of us who have a Bible, only those of us who have heard the story of Jesus Christ and the gospel have access to God. John says that this life illuminates all humankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not grasp it. 
As you look at that word, I translated grasp. You'll notice some translators look at it one way, some look at it another. I deliberately chose a word that will work either way because I think there's an intentional ambiguity in what John is saying here. Um, John is saying about the darkness, uh, and, and that idea of the word there in the Greek, grasp, can have the idea of uh, seizing or laying hold of. In that sense, if you're thinking uh, physically of capturing, uh, overcoming, uh, overpowering, some translations say the darkness did not overcome it. Uh, but it also can be thought of in terms of mental uh, acuity. It can be thought of in terms of, I don't get it. I didn't catch that. I didn't understand it. And translators normally go one way or the other. Either it's the darkness did not overpower it or the dark, darkness could not understand it. I think John intends us to to understand both meanings. As I read through the rest of the gospel, I find strong evidence of both themes in the gospel of John. Darkness did do everything it could to crush and destroy Jesus. There are multiple death plots against him. There are moments in his ministry where people take up stones to kill him, and they don't. Uh, and even ultimately, when all the powers that be combine forces and send Jesus to the cross, they do not emerge victorious because... At the resurrection, Jesus utterly crushes all the forces of darkness. So it is true. The darkness did not overcome the light that was Jesus. But also, as we read through the Gospel of John over and over, it seems like people don't get it. That they uh, say they believe and then a little bit later they're completely at odds with Jesus and the disciples themselves are often not getting it and uh, even people who come to Jesus searching have to admit, Jesus, I don't understand. Nicodemus is a great example. Jesus tells him exactly what he needs to know and he says, I don't get it, Jesus. We're coming out of darkness into light as we approach Jesus. And I think the Gospel of John lets us know that this is a difficult transition. That the darkness we are coming out of has a very hard time wrapping its mind around who Jesus is. And I think we face both the inner rejection of Christ and the desire to be done with him because of sin and our desire to protect our sin. And also, even though we yearn for the light and the warmth and the life that is in Jesus, even though we lean into that, we oftentimes, the darkness makes it difficult for us to understand. We'll see that play out throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. I have a question from these first five verses. John tells us that darkness can neither overpower nor understand God's light. As we seek to receive God's message to us in Jesus Christ, how do we also struggle with seeking to impose our will on it or truly understand it? Let's continue, verses 6 through 9. There was a man sent from God, his given name, John. This one came as a witness so that he might bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. 
That one was not the light, but came so that he might bear witness about the light. The true light, who gives light to every human, was coming into the world. John, the, uh, the gospel writer, is different from John the Baptist. Now, I'll tell you this secret about uh, the gospel of John. It's no secret, but maybe you hadn't known. John never identifies himself in the gospel he's writing by name. So uh, the only John he mentions is John the Baptist, who is a different John. Uh, John, I think, out of humility and out of a sense of awe that God loved him so much, only ever refers to himself explicitly in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we know from the earliest church tradition that John was that disciple who wrote this gospel. But uh, So here he's talking about another John, John the Baptist, who was uh, son of, of uh, Mary's cousin Elizabeth and uh, was six months older than him. Uh, remember the miraculous pregnancy of Elizabeth who had been barren and was now into her old age and God miraculously allowed her to conceive uh, John the Baptist and while she was in her sixth month of pregnancy is when uh, Mary came to visit her right after hearing that she was going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit and when she arrived uh, the baby within uh, Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy at the arrival uh, of Mary and Jesus so he's six months older than Jesus and kind of a cousin once removed um, so what do we know about John and why does John choose this moment to talk about John the Baptist well some people speculate that after the death of Jesus by then John is already dead there were people who had been following John the Baptist and then there were disciples who followed Jesus and even though John pointed people to Jesus it seems that there were still a lot of disciples that remained associated with John and even into the book of Acts we read of people who only knew the baptism of John uh, so there was a, a significant following of John even though he was beheaded by uh, Herod um, and uh, I think John is trying to help us to understand the ministry of John the Baptist. People who only are exposed to that aspect need to receive the full benefit of why God sent John the Baptist to begin with. And that was to prepare us to turn to Jesus. Not that we would remain disciples of John the Baptist, but that we would become disciples of Jesus. So uh, he tells us about John. This is why he came. He came as a witness so that he might bear witness about the light. I want to tell you this word witness uh, and the verb to bear witness is a prominent word in the gospel according to John. It happens, I believe, uh, 47 times. Yeah, 47 times in the gospel constantly. And here's the thing John is reminding us about the gospel and about who Jesus is. That we are compelled to bear witness of who he is to others. That's what John the Baptist came to do. And he was the first among many. That is what every disciple of Jesus is meant to do. To bear witness to the light. Bear witness about the light. So that all might believe through him. And uh, the difference between bearing witness and just telling people about Jesus. Is that in order to bear witness. You have to be an eyewitness yourself. 
If you're called into a court of law to give testimony, to bear witness to events, if you're talking about something that you did not personally experience, that is not witness, that is hearsay. Uh, that's, uh, if, if it's removed from you directly, you're not bearing witness. You're just talking about what you heard from somebody. In that sense, what we have to communicate about Jesus is not information about Jesus. We have to encounter Jesus and share of him what we have enc- encountered of him. We bear witness. And I much prefer the word witness Uh, to uh, evangelize, Uh, bear witness. That's the favorite term of John. And notice uh, John, the gospel writer, is very careful to point out to us that John was not the light himself. He came so that he might bear witness about the light. He came to point people to the light, to bring people to the light. And we've been talking all year long in Romans about sharing the gospel. We find that expressed in the gospel of John in this repeated term of bearing witness. We must be witnesses to the world, to who Christ is. That true light, the true light, Jesus, who gives light to every human was coming into the world. Again, this light is not for a reserved few. Jesus shines his light on everyone. And people who have no access to Bibles still have access to the light of Jesus because God will make himself known to those who reach out to him in faith. Just as Abraham came to faith in God, redeeming faith in Christ, even though Christ hadn't even come yet. God brought him into a relationship and there are people on the far side of the world who have no access to Bibles and yet God will drive them out of their home country and send them to another nation as refugees so that they may be exposed to the gospel or he will move the heart of somebody on the other side of the world so that he leaves everything behind to go and share the gospel with him or Jesus himself will appear in dreams and visions and reveal himself but God makes himself known to everyone and we are called to participate in the God who is calling all humankind to himself we hit in this verse another word that's going to be important throughout the gospel of John so that all might believe through him you might be surprised to see me translate that believe when I'm translating Paul I always translate that verb to have faith There are some interesting things I've discovered studying John. Uh, One of them is that whereas Paul uses often both the word faith, the noun, and the verb faith, to have faith, uh, John never once in his gospel uses the noun faith. The only thing John ever talks about is the verb, to have faith. And you might think, well, then why don't you translate it to have faith if that's the same core? It's basically the verbal form of the word faith. It does include the the meaning of believing or trusting. um, But I think there's an ambiguity in the way John uses the term faith as opposed to Paul. 
And let me explain what I mean. Paul uses the word faith, both the noun and the verb, always in the positive sense of genuine redeeming faith. When Paul talks about faith, he's talking about the kind of trusting surrender to Jesus as Savior and Lord that will inevitably result in your redemption that results in you receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit and being sealed to eternity. When Paul uses faith, that's what he's talking about. But John doesn't use the verb that way. John seems to be aware that not everything people call faith is actually that kind of redeeming faith. He is more along the lines of James. James talks about two kinds of faith. There is a genuine faith that inevitably will result in the kinds of things you're doing. Your works will come out of that faith. But there is a dead faith that claims belief in Jesus, but that bears no fruit and therefore denies the reality of that claim. There is such a thing as a false version of faith. I think that is the ambiguity with which John uses the term to have faith. That's why I'm, I'm translating it believe because I think for us the word believe retains that ambiguity. You can believe something and change your mind tomorrow. Uh, it, it, it can imply faith, it can imply trust, but not necessarily. And it, it has the ambiguity that I think John intends. So I'll be translating it believe throughout the gospel. Let me give you a clear example of what I'm talking about. In chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, John begins a section here where Jesus is talking uh, to some Jews. And he says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, that verb, faith, to have faith, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus is addressing Jews who have believed, have put their faith in him. You know what follows immediately after that statement of Jesus? They respond to him. We are children of Abraham. We have never once been slaves to anyone. Anybody who knows even a smattering of Jewish history knows that's absurd. God called them out of slavery to begin with. But, uh, and what follows is a long argument back and forth. And let me show you how it ends. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid and went out of the temple. So do you get what I'm saying? John, when he says believe, uh, means uh, something a little different than Paul does. People can uh, have an initial response to some uh, amazing sign that Jesus has performed. He's just healed somebody. He's fed 5,000 with just a couple of loaves and some fish. Uh, he's done something miraculous. They believe in him. But then immediately that belief is challenged when Jesus says something to us that breaks our assumptions about things and that calls on us to trust in him rather than ourselves. He's constantly breaking our, our past worldview, our way of conceiving things, our way of understanding things, and calling us deeper into himself. And that process of walking in faith in John is a difficult process. But this is what uh, John the Baptist came to accomplish, that we might believe, we might come to saving faith through him. 
I have a question from these verses. John will use the root word to bear witness 47 times in his gospel. Why is it crucial that we bear witness to Jesus Christ and how is this different than merely informing the world about him? Let's keep reading verses 10 through 13. He was in the world and the world came to be through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave authority to become children of God to those believing in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a husband, but of God. John describes very quickly here for us that there were two responses to this message from God. Uh, This message came into the world and even though this is the very message that spoke the world into existence, the world didn't know him. And more more specifically, he didn't just show up somewhere on the earth. Uh, He arrived right smack dab in the middle of the people God had been calling to himself for 1,500 years. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. They did not welcome him in. That sounds awful. That God should speak to us, and that his creation should say, I don't want to hear it. But that's not the only response to this message. There are people who did receive him. There are people who threw their arms open and welcomed him. To these, God has given, or Jesus, the message, has granted authority to become children of God. We now have the right to be made children of God because of him. And it's for those who have believed, who have put their faith in his name, And John tells us that when we do that, when we come to this genuine surrender of trust to Jesus, then we become children of God, not just in name. And for this, perhaps for this reason, uh, John does not use the language of adoption that Paul likes to use. John doesn't say we are adopted. It's not like all of a sudden God calls us his children. No, he says we are now born a new chapter 3 we'll get into that in more detail but when we come to genuine faith trust in Jesus when we receive the gift of the holy spirit that causes a new birth in us we are born anew and we are children of god not just by adoption not just in legal terms not just according to paperwork we are flesh and blood spirit born into his family engendered by the very God who created everything. Born, not of blood, it's not just a physical thing, nor of the will of flesh, not just a human thing, not just genealogical realities, not even the will of a husband, a husband who says, I want to have children, and I want to father children, and I want to have children. John says, this birth has nothing to do with anything we have accomplished or anything we want. This is a birth that God accomplishes in us. If we receive Jesus, 
if we open our hearts to the message God is speaking to us in Jesus, we become his children born into his family. I have a question from these verses. John tells us that if we receive Jesus, God grants us the authority to become his children, a miraculous birth that only he can accomplish. What does it mean to be born of God in this manner? Fourteen through eighteen. And the message became flesh and pitched his tent among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bears witness about him, and he has cried out, saying, This is the one of whom I spoke. The one coming after me has ranked before me, because he existed before me. For out of his fullness we have all received grace, piled upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came to be through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only God, the one who is in the Father's bosom, that is who has made him known. Paul, I'm sorry, John finally tells us what exactly this communication of God that came in Jesus, how this was different from previous communications from God. He had uh, communicated his law through Moses and the prophets. We'd been given the Holy Scriptures that he communicates through creation itself. There are so many ways in which God communicates. What is different about the message that came in Jesus? He says, the message became flesh. John is very careful in his language here. And uh, through the early centuries of the church and to this day, uh, there remain people who say, no, no, following Greek philosophy, they think that spirit is pure and matter is not pure. Matter is dirty and wicked and evil. Therefore, the, if there is a supreme God above everything, the God above all, it, that God could never dirty himself by taking on flesh. That would make him less than. It would make him a wicked Make him participate in wickedness. And uh, so in the early centuries, uh, already there were people saying about Jesus, yes, we like Jesus, but you know what? We're not going to say that Jesus uh, was God come in the flesh. We're just going to say that Jesus appeared human. It was an apparition. It was uh, like a ghost. Uh, He seemed human and that's the the Greek word to seem is dokeo and from that we get the word docetism uh, that he appeared human but wasn't human he was only divine spirit kind of like a hologram or something like that Uh, other people try to get around it in the early centuries by saying no uh, God didn't become flesh he just kind of took it over for a bit And some people said that God's spirit took control of Jesus at his baptism and then abandoned him at the cross. That's the idea of adoptionism. Uh, And uh, that God kind of had an earth suit for a bit, but it really wasn't. It was was just, uh, he he was still remained distinct from it. John makes sure we don't misunderstand him. Jesus didn't put on an earth suit for a while. Jesus became flesh. 
the message became flesh. He pitched his tent among us. That is the language of Exodus. In Exodus, God tells Moses, after delivering the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he says, I want you to build a tent for me, and I want you to put it smack dab in the center of the camp of the people of Israel, because I want to pitch my tent in the middle of Israel. I want to live among you. John is the only uh, New Testament writer that uses this word, to pitch his tent and now it can just mean to live among, but the, the, the etymology of it literally is to pitch a tent, uh, even if it was used to simply mean to live among. And he uses this in Revelation 21, verse 3, when we have this vision of God's church uh, the holy city Jerusalem sent from heaven to earth to send out the proclamation to the ends of the earth. Come in and find healing from the wound of sin. This precious bride of the Lamb is described and uh, coming from heaven to earth. And this is what in Revelation John says about the church and God living in the church. Behold, God's tabernacle is with humans and he will pitch a tent with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. So uh, John likes to describe Jesus coming in the flesh as God taking up residence among us. He took a physical address. He became flesh and it is a profound mystery because he didn't just make use of a human body for a bit. That body is resurrected and will exist as a part of who God is forever. The risen Christ will remain the risen human Christ as well as the eternal divine Christ. That's a mystery. It's a hard thing to wrap our heads around the mystery of who God is and the mystery of the incarnation. But Jesus, God, became flesh. And uh, I think the author of Hebrews makes the point that he had to do that because he could not become the perfect author of salvation. He could not become the perfect intercessor on our behalf unless he had suffered in his own flesh the things that we suffer. Athanasius was a famous church father in Alexandria and he put it this way, uh, he could not redeem what he did not assume. This message became flesh, took up residence among us. And John says, how do I describe it? We saw his glory. What, what was it like? It's like the glory of that one and only unique. This is, Jesus is not one God among many. He is the God, the one and only God from the Father full of grace and truth. It's like he was the Son and we basked in the glow of his glory. And he brought grace and truth to us. These verses are the only place where he uses the term grace. This unmerited favor. But truth is another word that he's going to repeat throughout the gospel over and over again. And this is an important thing John wants to establish in his gospel. What we're talking about with Jesus is not wishful thinking. It's not theoretical. It is absolute truth. And Jesus brings truth to us. 
You may have heard that there's no such thing as truth. You have yours, I have mine, who knows what's truth? You know, that's a very old question. Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Uh, You haven't discovered anything new if you say that kind of thing today. But you know what? The Gospel of John tells us that truth does exist. And the reason we don't get it is that truth is not something we possess. Truth is not something we manage and control. True, we are finite beings. Our understanding is always suspect. We cannot grasp truth. It's beyond us because we are finite. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. How do we know the truth? We know the truth when we know Jesus because John will tell us later on in his gospel, Jesus himself said, I am the truth. Truth is not a concept. Truth is rooted in a person. And we can know truth as we come to Jesus. And discipleship is the very process by which truth is imparted to us. And lies and deception are ever more pushed out. Full of grace and truth. And he says out of his fullness we've all received grace piled upon grace. Literally in the Greek there it says grace in place of grace. It's like God gives us a grace and then he has another one to give us. And it's so big that it displaces the previous grace. There's just so much of it. It's like a a never-ending, ever-renewing supply of grace that keeps displacing the previous. Grace piled up on grace. That's what God wants to share with us in Christ. The law was given through Moses. Yes, instructions for living, guidance, a moral compass, an idea of this is right, this is wrong, a way to pattern our lives, all of that is wonderful. We would be horribly, horribly uh, in, in a terrible position if it weren't for the influence of the law and the Ten Commandments through human history. God gave us a great thing through Moses, but he's given us something better in Jesus, grace and truth. Not just guidelines, but God's own goodness, God's own truth he has given to us. What exactly is he sharing? Is it just these things, grace, I like grace, truth, uh, correcting mistakes and helping us understand things rightly? Is that it? No, it's more than that. John kind of concludes this opening preamble with verse 18, no one has ever seen God. We haven't seen him. God is beyond our capability to register. The one and only God himself, the one who is in the Father's bosom, this is the intimacy with which the Son and the Father uh, share the Godhead. That is the one who has made him known. What is it this message means to convey to us? Is it information? No. Jesus came to share himself with us. That is the ultimate gift God can give us, that we may know him. Paul, I think, always 
struggled to wrap his head around this and he knew it worked the other way around when he talked about knowing God he said he would say and knowing him or rather he had to correct himself or rather have I have been known by him the God who knows me invites me to know him back The God who loves me invites me to know him, be loved by him, and enter into a relationship of love with him. God himself is the message Jesus came to bring us. I have a final question. John says that no one has ever seen God, and yet... Jesus has made him known. Why should knowing God be the ultimate goal of our faith in Christ? We've reached the end of our passage today, so God has a message to convey to us. And that message is all about life and light, grace and truth, all these wonderful good things we long for. But you know what ultimately the message is all about? It is about connecting us not to the gifts of God, but to the God who contains those gifts within himself. The greatest gift is God himself. And God is communicating in Jesus himself to us. He wants us to have him and to be had by him. To belong to each other. That's the wonder of what Christ has brought to us. Don't settle for things that you want Jesus to give you. Go for the true prize. Go for the true treasure. Put your heart, focus it on Jesus himself. God is the gift from which flows life and light and grace and truth and every single good thing we will ever know in life. Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to us, for speaking to us. Lord, give us hearts that are hungry for your light and that are desperate to leave behind the darkness and help us to give up on the darkness and to uh, let go of the sin that so entices us and reach toward you in this journey of faith. And Jesus, speak yourself to us, make yourself known to us, and give us your grace, your light, your life, your truth. Free us from the power of sin and darkness. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.